topic this week out of the book of Malachi chapter 1, God's greatest gift of love. So we're starting a new book, uh, the book of Malachi, which is the last book of the first part of the Bible. And uh, as we've been preaching the Bible chapter by chapter in chronological order from Genesis chapter 1 until now. And so now we're in the last book, it's only a four chapter book. So I don't know what happens after that. I think maybe I'll die, or I don't know, maybe the Lord will come, or I don't know. <laughs> what, what will happen at the end of that? Because I don't know where you go after you preach the whole Bible, right? So we've done every chapter out of the Bible. Uh, the second part of the Bible, we've done the midweek uh, lessons, and uh, most of them are on shalomadventure.com. And so this may be the very end, right? So four more chapters, uh, and then it's the end. That's it. That'd be, the end. That'd be great. <laughs> that would be <laughs> terrific. So... We'll see what happens. Anyway, for this chapter, so kind of a little review. We've been doing a series, uh, again, in that whole series from Genesis to, to Malachi, and again, in the second part of the Bible on midweeks uh, services. Uh, but in this last part of this series, we've been covering from the return uh, after Babylon, or so post-Babylon uh, biblical accounts. And so going from prior to the return, back when Nebuchadnezzar came and, and took this captive, and we were able to come back captive. So Malachi's at the very end of that time, and Malachi chapter 1, verse 1, starts with the words, the burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. And I think that is significant. It might not sound like much, kind of like a beginning of a lot of books, uh, although he refers to himself as Malachi, not Malachi ben anything, not son of, as many of the prophets when they're writing their book, they refer to themselves so that people know exactly who they are. It just says Malachi, which can be translated as my messenger. And so kind of it's an interesting phrase to refer to that. But it's the word of the burden of the word of the Lord. Right? So if, uh, you know, if you get a call from your boss and he says, I want to see you in my office, I got a burden on my heart about you. You, know, you might uh, be a little concerned. And so it's this burden of the word of the Lord to Israel. And that's significant with our chart here because Israel was taken captive long before this chart, before this arrow of return. We go, we had, going all the way back, you had, uh, of course, the 12 tribes coming from Jacob and then coming into the land with Moses or then Joshua and the tribes dividing up the land, God designating the divisions and then continuing that way all throughout the book of Judges, 400 or so years. And then King Saul comes, and then King David, and then King Solomon, and we still have this united 12 tribes of Israel. And then after Solomon, Solomon's son, Rehoboam, becomes king, and there is a civil war that takes place, and the 10 northern tribes break off, and they become known as Israel, while the two lower tribes, plus uh, Levi, so you have Judah, Benjamin, and Levi all become known as Judah. So you have Judah, the country of Judah in the south with uh, the kings from the lineage of David and then Israel in the north, 10 tribes there and they have lots of different lineages. They don't have a set lineage following. And the, the, and the southern tribes, the southern Judah remains for about 400 years Northern Israel, after, I don't know, 300 or something years, gets taken captive by the Assyrians. The Assyrians come in and take them and disperse them throughout the Assyrian kingdom. 
and then bring other people in to uh, inhabit the land, later on become known as the Samaritans. Um, and then Judah remains for a time, and then eventually Babylon comes and takes Judah captive. And it's from Judah, from the lower tribes, Judah, Benjamin, and Levi, where we get the term Jews from. So Jews from Judah, and they become captive. Babylon takes us, uh, the rest and disperses them throughout the area of Babylon, which included Assyria. Babylon took over Assyria, and so they get scattered too. But then, now we get to our chart, when this return takes place, under King Cyrus of Persia, he allows us to return, people start returning. Now, in some, today's, sometimes people refer to the northern tribes as the ten lost tribes of Israel. Uh, they got dispersed and never were heard from again. But here now, Malachi is all the way at the end of this chart, about 130 or so years later, and he's writing that the burden of the Lord is to Israel, not just to Judah, not just to the Jews, but to Israel. Thus, when the return took place, when Cyrus gave a decree and some people returned with Zerubbabel, it must have been from a scattering of all the tribes. And then when another return takes place under Ezra, more must have come also from all the tribes, and then also uh, with Nehemiah. More must have come back from all the tribes, that, uh, thus a representation from all 12, or really 13 tribes, are represented, including Levi. Thus, all the way down at the time of Malachi, he's referring to the burden of the Lord to Israel. And so the 10 tribes are never really lost. A remnant also returned with Judah, with Benjamin, and with Levi. And so we, Malachi, uh, or if, if you're Italian, it's Malukai. <laughs> but uh, um, prophesied about the time of Nehemiah, towards the end there, not exactly sure, he didn't give a date or a reference to a, uh, a king or a governor or anything, but they believe it was about that time, maybe um, matching right up with, with Nehemiah. So towards towards that time, and then again, that's the end. And then we go 400 years. It's interesting, these 400-year patterns. About 400 years from Abraham to Moses, about 400 years from Moses to, through the time of Judges to the kings, and then about 400 time, years from about King David to the captivity. And then we have this period, and then about another 400 years from Malachi to uh, the coming of Yeshua and the Gospel accounts. So, and so that's our timeline there, so let's get into this book of Malachi. Verse 2, I have loved you, says the Lord. Well, that's good. So your boss called you up. I've got a burden I want to share with you. You go in, you're all nervous, and he says, I love you. Oh, that was great. <laughs> that wasn't so bad. That's a nice message. That's a great message to start this book with. Oh, he loves us. God says he loves you. That's terrific, right? And it should end right there, and we can all go home, and that'd be a wonderful message. And that is a message that we have all throughout the Bible. God is love, and he's manifested his love towards us, and how he loves us, he loves us, he loves us. It's all throughout the scriptures. And he does love us. 
And that's a great takeaway. That is a great thing for us to know because he does love you. He loves each of us personally. He loves Israel as a whole. He loves all people that serve him and love him and surrender their hearts to him and become part of God's overcomers with him. His love is great towards us. The verse continues and they respond and say, yet you say, in what way have you loved us? And whether or not this is an actual conversation that's taking place between Malachi and the people, or whether this is just a prophecy and God saying, I know what's in your heart. Really, in your mind, in your heart, in the back of your conscience, you're thinking, how do I know that God loves me? In what way have you loved me? And how would you feel about that? You're married, spouse, 30 years, something like that. And, and uh, one morning or one evening, they say, oh, I love you. And I say, oh, really? How do I know you love me? Right? That's kind of pretty insulting. You know, a man, his name is Jimmy, told me a story, true story. Um, his wife, you know, again, some point in the day, said, I love you. And he said, uh, yes, but I love you more. And she was taken aback. And she said, you love me more. He says, that's right, I love you more than you love me. She said, we've been married all these years. We've been married 20 years. And I've, I gave up, you know, I, was, I had this career and we just said, you wanted to move and we had to do this and I, I gave that up for you. He says, yes, but I love you more. And she says, and I've, I've cooked for you all these years and picked up your socks and I've done your laundry and... We had two children together, and I pray, I, but I love you more. I raised these kids, and I've stuck by you, and I also got a job, and participated and contributed to the household, and we've gone on vacations together. I've shown my love to you over and over again, all throughout these years. He says, yes, I know, but I love you more. And she got frustrated when she says, how can you say you love me more? And he says, because you've been so much better to me than I've been to you, that I love you more. You deserve more love than I do, and so I love you more because you deserve it. And that kind of shocked her. <laughs> and that's beautiful. And God has loved us so much. We should respond so much more to his love. And as Yeshua told in the story with Mary, those that have forgiven much, love much. Those who have been given much, love much. God has loved us greatly. And so for them to respond and say, yet you say, in what way have you loved us? It's really a slap in the face. After all God has done for us, and yet, really, our attitude is not always much different. We read some sign, we see some bumper sticker, it shows up on the screen, I loved you, and we go, oh, yeah, I know God loves us, yeah. But it doesn't really impact us. Sometimes we don't even really take it to heart. But it is an amazing thing that the creator of the universe loves you and loves me. And it should impact us in such a way 
to invoke a response, a loving return response to him instead of just kind of an indifferent, oh yeah, well, have you done this for me? And why haven't you answered this prayer? And why am I going through this trouble? And why am I sick here? And why am I financially strapped here? And why doesn't this person like me? And why did I lose this job? And why did this happen to me? And why did this happen in my childhood? Where have you been, God, if you've loved me so much? Like Tevia said, you know, for the chosen people, why don't you choose someone else maybe for a change? If this is what it means to be chosen, you know, it's not so great. So they asked that question, and this is God's response. Was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord? Yet Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated, and laid waste his mountains and his heritage for the jackals of the wilderness. Now this short little line here out of the book of uh, Malachi, chapter 1, especially verse 3, or 2 and 3, had become the volume of discussion of pages and pages and pages of theological debate. It's quoted in the book of Romans, chapter 9. Thus says the Lord, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. And that's his response to asking, how do we know that you love us? In what ways have you shown that you love us? And he doesn't say a whole lot about how he loves them. He says, I love Jacob, and Jacob has his name changed to Israel, and that again is who he's talking about here. Not just the literal Jacob, but also the 12 tribes, the nation of Israel. Jacob I have loved, but in contrast, Esau I have hated, and laid waste his mountains, his heritage, for the jackals of the wilderness. And continues, even though Edom, and Edom comes from Esau, the Edomites, we have been impoverished, but we will rebuild and build the desolate places. But thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will overthrow, I will throw down. They shall be called the territory of wickedness, and the people against whom the Lord will have indignation forever. Your eyes shall see and you shall say, the Lord is magnified beyond the borders of Israel. So their question, how do we know that you love us? In what ways have you loved us? And again, really, instead of a direct answer of all the things he's done for Israel, he says, but look at Esau. Look at the Edomites. Look at what happened to them. And if you look across the border, you will say the Lord is magnified beyond the border of Israel. So that's his response to this, I have loved you. And really this whole book of Malachi is about this. It's about God's love towards us and our response or lack of response to that love. That's a nutshell of the book of Malachi. And we'll see that played out over the next several weeks. So he uses this Esau-Jacob analogy. And so what exactly does it mean? Well, Jacob, Israel, was taken captive by Babylon and dispersed, and then Edom later on, also by Babylon. So they had opportunity. They had opportunity to see what happened to Israel, and there were warnings by some of the Jewish prophets that this was going to happen to Edom, too, if they didn't get their act straight. So they had opportunity. They had warning. 
and they were laid desolate. Why? Because they did not heed the warning. And if we go back to the original people, Jacob and Esau, not just the nation comparison, Israel and Edom, twins in birth, and prophecy is that the that was given to their mother was that the older will serve the younger. And as it turns out, Esau was born first, and then Jacob came out afterwards. So out of sequence, where the firstborn gets the birthright and the double inheritance, so if there's two children, the firstborn gets two-thirds and the second one gets one-third. And part of the birthright is also then the leader of the household when the father dies, then the oldest child then again leads the tribe, leads the household. And then in this case, with the Messiah coming through the line, prophesied through the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that the spiritual blessings would come through that line as well. So that was all promised to Esau because of the initial birthright, but then prophesied it would not go to Esau, but that Esau would rather serve Jacob. And we see that play out as they are growing in maturity and age, and Esau goes out hunting one day. Jacob is nearby the tents, and he's there cooking a pot of soup. And Esau comes back from the field, and he says, I'm hungry. What do you got cooking there? And Jacob says, I got some lentils here. Esau says, give me some of that. And Jacob says, I'll give you some as a trade for your birthright. Esau says, what is that to me? I'm starving here. I don't care about that. Give me some soup. Thus demonstrating his interest or lack of interest or appreciation of that firstborn privilege. The spiritual privilege, the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the nations being blessed through his offspring, the taking care of the household, taking care of mother and any other young people that might be around if father dies, and even the financial gain. He didn't care. He was only in the here and now. I'm starving. And he wasn't starving. I mean, he could have made it whatever few more feet or hundreds of feet, however far away Jacob was from the tents. He could have made it there and got his mom to take out a bag of potato chips or something for him. You know, I mean, he, he wouldn't have died. But he was in the moment, in the here and now, very immature. You take a little child and offer them a quarter today or a dollar a week from now, you know, they'll go for the now most often. You know, or you give them some money now, they'll spend it before the day is up. Because it's in the here and now. Not thinking towards the future, not mature. And he still wasn't mature spiritually or emotionally. He just wanted now. And we are like that too. Society now is in the here and now. It's all about now. That's why we have such tremendous debt, both nationally and individually. It's horrible. To have to have it, have to buy it, credit cards, and buying on time. And tremendous problem of humanity. It's how addictions get started and all kinds of problems that we have. Living in the here and now and not the bigger picture. Not planning, not looking, not serving God. And so the birthright gets taken from him and given to Jacob. 
God prophesied that ahead of time. Now, some people might say, well, you see, that had to happen because God said it and God told, had the, uh, the angel tell uh, Rebecca and so that had to happen. Well, it didn't necessarily have to happen just because God prophesied it. God didn't force it. Just because he foretold it doesn't mean he forces it. Right? Let's say uh, we're down at a river by, where there's a bridge, right? And we're all there having a picnic together and we're sitting there eating. And, um, and we see this guy step over the rail and he's looking down at the water and, and John goes, oh my, that guy, he's going to jump. And then the guy jumps. And John says, oh no, he's going to hit the water, he's going to become as flat as a pancake, he's going to die. And sure enough, second later, the guy hits the water, comes flat as a pancake and dies. Now did John push him? Did John push him off the bridge? No. But he said it beforehand. He said it before the guy jumped. He said it before the guy hit the water. So just because John was able to know and sense what was going to happen and said it, doesn't mean he pushed them. And so just because God prophesied ahead of time of what Esau was going to be like and what Jacob was going to be like, didn't mean he forced it. And so God foresaw and prophesied it the way it turned out. And then so also for Edom. And so God loved Jacob and showed his love to Jacob. Why? Because Jacob loved God. The same reason how Abraham got called. God could have called anyone. But Abraham responded to God's call. And thus he was chosen. And then Isaac, and then Jacob, and then down the line. And then we see with Jacob's 12 children. The birthright doesn't end up going to the oldest. It actually gets divided among three. Judah gets the king leadership. Levi gets the spiritual leadership. And Joseph gets the double portion gets divided up by those who were made the choices to receive it and their lineage being the choices to receive it and that is the theme of this answer of how do I know you love me how do we know that God loves us because of this great gift maybe the greatest gift God has given us in the ability to choose. So as I mentioned, this text, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated, is quoted in chapter 9 of the book of Romans. And just reading just the book of Romans, chapter 9, just chapter 9 by itself, you might think, oh boy, it sounds like God chose Jacob and God hated Esau and that God predetermined it and that's how it had to be. And again, there's whole theological discussions which will then run with that and even to the point where there's a whole teaching and, and, a, and a large number of Bible-believing people go with this thinking that there are some people that are just born to be saved and there are just people, some people born to be lost. And that it's all predetermined before God even created the earth. It really is a horrible picture of the statement of what it says about God. Because then God allowed people to be created who never will go to heaven. They will suffer through this earth and then have to suffer in being separated from him for eternity. It makes God the creator. It's like he 
Choose zeeny, miny, miny, mo. Whoever's born, you know, whatever number you happen to be born. Oh, you were born number, you know, and you get to go. And you, you were born number such and such, you don't. And he's looking at Jacob and Esau, this one, that one, drawing straws of who's going to get it. It's kind of this arbitrary lottery that God throws out there. Or if not an arbitrary lottery, then God chose one and then also chose the other just for the purpose of being lost and being destroyed. I mean, that'd be pretty, pretty horrible. That'd be like a couple going out and adopting two children and adopting one so they can pour out their love upon and adopting the other only for the purpose of beating them up all the time. That'd be pretty horrendous. And then to kill them in the end. But that's basically what it says about God, if that's how it's interpreted. But if we continue reading the book of Romans, we come to this verse, chapter 10, verse 12. 10 comes right after 9. So if you keep reading Paul's reasonings, he comes to this clear, plain verse. There is no distinction between Jew and Greek, or we could put in there Jacob and Esau. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Does that sound like an arbitrary choosing on God's part? That whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved? Or does that sound more like an open invitation to everybody and anybody who's ever been created. And that is more in harmony with the rest of the Bible and the character of God that is love. So it's not that he favored Jacob and hated Esau, per se, as an individual, as a person, but that he hated what Esau did to himself. He hated that Esau spurned the birthright, that Esau rejected the wonderful offer of salvation, of the important privilege and responsibility of taking over for the family, of the wonderful benefit of the double portion, of the spiritual responsibility of leading the nation in following God. But Esau had no interest in that. Married Canaanites had no interest in God, no interest in the God of his fathers, no interest of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Demonstrated that over and over in his life. And then for the most part, from the record we have, the Edomites continue in that way. And they remain for hundreds of years in God in his great love towards Esau. God could have, God hated Esau, he could have cut him off right from the start. You rejected this birthright, I gave you the chance, you sold it for a bowl of soup. You're out of here. Nobody gave him more time and more life and more example through his father, more example through his brother, more examples through his mother. And he continued to reject and continued to reject and continued to reject. And then again, his offspring, the Edomites. They lived beside Israel. They saw God working in Israel. There were prophecies given to Jewish prophets that wrote about Esau, Edomites. And time and time they had opportunity. As I mentioned, Babylon attacked Israel first. So they could see that. 
and they still rejected it. And so how did God love Jacob? He let us return. He warned us ahead and warned us ahead and warned us ahead. And then as people, as we saw on the chart, people like uh, Zerubbabel and Haggai and Zechariah and Esther and Mordecai and Ezra and Nehemiah and many, many, many others learned the lesson from being captive in Babylon, learned the lesson from rebellion against God and repented and came back so that they could build the temple, making that a first priority so that they could have sacrifices pointing forward to the Messiah, so they could have forgiveness of sins, so that they can have remission of their sins and removing of their sins and receive the power of God to change. That's what they wanted. That's what they desired. And so God blessed and poured out that blessing. And the Edomites did not. Right? How many here know, know an Edomite? How many have a friend who's an Edomite? You have a friend who's an Edomite? Maybe someone you work with, a work associate? Know anyone? Neighbor? Anywhere in your life, anytime you were alive. How about anyone even know of, maybe not know personally, but know of, you know, like a, you know, some famous singer who's an Edomite or a, a ball player, you know, chasing a pigskin around, you know, someone who does that? Politician, Edomite, polit I think. No, they're not around. <laughs> there are, they are no more. There are no Edomites. There has not been for centuries. Millennial, millenniums, they don't exist. But Jacob is still here. Israel is still here. God has sustained us. So how do they ask, how do we know that you love us? Well, you're still alive. Right? So if you woke up this morning and your name wasn't in the obituary, God loves you. He's given us breath. He's given us life. He's given us brains. He's given us the ability to think. And most importantly, he gave us the ability to choose. Whosoever will call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Whoever wants it, given freely. The same Lord is rich to all who call upon him, whether Jew or Greek, same Lord. Whether Cain or Abel, same Lord, rich towards all. God came to Cain before he killed Abel and warned him out of love. Why are you so angry? Get over it. If you do what is right, you'll be accepted. Do like Jay, uh, Abel did, and offer the right sacrifice. You want to do your own thing? You want to go your own way? Well, how can I accept that? It's rebellion. It's rejection of, of me, who I know best. Why do you be that way? He warned him. He said, you can beat this thing. Sin is rising up in your heart. This anger is building up in your heart. But you don't have to go there. You can surrender it. I can give you victory over it. And he chose to disregard God's message and God's warning and God's love, and he goes and kills his brother. Again, Jacob and Esau, same kind of thing. Not that he hated Cain. And again, he shows mercy to Cain. He could have taken Cain out right then and there. He comes to Cain. I, your brother's blood is crying out to me. 
But in mercy, he allows Cain to continue to live. Give him more time to repent. God's love and mercy is there for all. Not an arbitrary choosing. But the same Lord is rich to all who call upon him. Would Esau fall in the all? Yeah, the all opportunity anyway, not all who call upon him because he never called on him. But rich towards all, the whosoever, the opportunity is there. So that's where Paul was running at in chapter 9, getting towards in chapter 10. Ezekiel 33, verse 11. Thus says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. That sound like God rejoices that Esau chose wrong? No, he doesn't rejoice. That's what he hates. It's not so much hating again Esau, but he's hating, I have no pleasure in your death. I hate that you're going on the path of dying. I hate that you're going on the path of rejection. I hate what you're doing to yourself. God's not insecure. He doesn't lose it when we turn our backs on him. He doesn't fall apart because we don't love him. He doesn't have a nervous breakdown because we, we reject him. He cries, but not for himself. He cries for us. He cries for lost humanity. He reaches out for lost humanity. He hates our wrong choices. But he still gives us those choices. He doesn't have pleasure in the death of the wicked. But in saying that he created some to die eternally, let's say you have a pleasure in it. He did it purposely, but he doesn't. As Peter continues the same thought, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So he's long-suffering. That's why we're still stuck here. That's why we're still stuck on this earth. He wants us to come to heaven. He wants us to come to heaven, but he wants everybody to come to heaven. He wants to give everyone an opportunity. And the quicker we give everybody that opportunity, the quicker we take the gospel to the world, then the end will come. He's long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish. That not willing that any should perish. Does that include Esau? Sure. Did it include Cain? Yes. He wasn't willing that Cain should perish. He wasn't willing that Esau should perish. But if he's going to choose to do that, he's not going to stop him. He didn't want Lucifer to leave heaven. He didn't want Lucifer to leave with one-third of the angels. But he couldn't allow rebellion to remain in heaven. He didn't want Adam and Eve to reject him. Why did he put that tree of, in there anyway? Why did he put the tree of knowledge of good and evil there anyway? He didn't have to put that tree there, right? Why did he put it there? 
to give free choice as a demonstration of loyalty, of love, of a responding to the love. You've given me all these other trees, who knows, thousands, hundreds of thousands, who knows how many other trees he could choose from. Gave Adam to Eve, Eve to Adam, all the animals and beautiful earth, first day of life, day of rest, the Sabbath. Gave him all those things. That's yeah, the simple requirement. Stay away from that one tree. Pretty simple. Test of love. Instead of responding to all the great abundance, Eve went for the thing that was restricted from her. And Eve, instead of choosing God, chose Adam, instead of choosing God, chose Eve. Now, thankfully, they repented, and God, in his great mercy, granted forgiveness, covered them with the sacrifice that they offered, the, the skins of the sacrifice. God is love, but he doesn't want, he didn't want them to choose that. He warned them not to. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Was God willing that all should come to repentance? That all, that God's willing and desiring all to come to repentance? Did that include Esau? Yes, that's why he gave him message after message after message. That include Judas? Yes, that's why Yeshua reached out to him and reached out to him and reached out to him. Same with Cain and again, down through the ages. God loves the world. For God so loved the world. Everyone. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever should believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God in his great love has reached out to us and is giving towards us, not wanting us to be destroyed. Everyone is free to choose, but, not, but no one is free from the consequences of those choices. Let me repeat that without messing it up this time. Everyone is free to choose, but no one is free from the consequences of those choices. God has given us free choice. And that is the greatest gift that God can give us, maybe even greater in some ways than the salvation, the sacrifice he gave us, because if he gave us the sacrifice but didn't give us the ability to choose it, then how good is it? Right? If Yeshua died for you, but sorry, you're one of those ones that are not on his list, then does that do you any good? If you were predestined to be lost, does his sacrifice do you any benefit at all? No. No. It's actually maybe worse because it's dangled before your face like a starving person being dangled some food before their face. They're starving to death and their food dangled there. Sorry, you can't have any. 
Salvation being preached, salvation being taught, Bibles being spread, falls into the hands of someone who's destined to be lost, but won't do him any good. That's a pretty horrible picture of God. God doesn't want anyone to be lost. But he gives everybody free choice. And free choice is a great thing to have. Can someone force you to love them? Do you think it's possible for somebody to force that upon you? Can you force somebody to love you? Can you make them do it? If you could, it wouldn't be love. Love is demonstrated through a choice. Right? You can have a robot, and you can have a teddy bear, and it can, you can push its belly and it can say, I love you, you know. But does it love you? Now you can cuddle there with it, but does it love you? Is it responding in love? You can put a nice little hat on it, you know, a little tea set with it, make a little bed for it. Does it appreciate it? No. It has no knowledge of anything that you're doing for it. Could care less about you. There's no knowledge. Love is a response. A choice. And without the ability to make that choice, there's no ability to love. Right? We even have a saying, if you have a bird and you let it go, if it comes back, it was yours. If it doesn't come back, it never was yours. Right? Hey, you can put it in the cage. You can keep it in the cage. You can feed it. You can teach it to the parrot or something like that to say, I love you. You know, but you open the window and open the cage and it goes off and it goes and finds some other bird and hangs out in some tree and never comes back. It really didn't love you, did it? It could say it. And it's there at the top of the tree, at the top of, you know, I love you, I love you, I love you, but it doesn't love you. It didn't come back to you. But if it's a bird and some birds will, they'll come back. They'll want your attention. And then it's really yours. It's received your love. And God wants his creation to love him. And so he created us with the ability to love. And in order to create the ability to love, he had to create the ability to reject that love. That free choice. Some atheist will throw this question at us and say, Oh, is God all-powerful? Oh, yeah, God's all-powerful. Oh, really? Since he's all-powerful, can he create an object so big that he himself can't lift it? Now, it's one of these gotcha questions, you know, like they tried to get Yeshua. It's a stupid question, you know. And so a stupid answer for a stupid question is, well, yes, he can create something that big, but he's not stupid enough to do that. But in a sense, he did create something bigger than himself. Something more powerful than even himself. And what he created? 
that's more powerful than him is free choice. Because he will not break our free choice. He wants us in heaven. Does he want you in heaven? Does he want your neighbor in heaven? Does he want your enemy in heaven? Does he want your boss in heaven? Does he want uh, your ex in heaven? Does he want? Yes, he wants the whole world in heaven. Whosoever. Will he force them? No. So he wants them there, but they won't be there. Not because he doesn't want them there, but because they don't want to be there. So he's given them something more powerful than his own desire. He's given us something more powerful than his own will, than his choice. He's given us the ability to choose. And that's an amazing power. Unfortunately, we misuse that power way too often. As humans, as a whole, as us individually, we've rejected him over and over and over again. He's poured out his love to us over and over and over again. We say, oh, how do you love me? How do I know you love me? How should I know that God loves me? When he's given us so great a salvation, when he's poured out his love towards us, where he's given us life and a promise of everlasting life, when he's given us the ability to choose, that he's not controlling, manipulating, coercing, that he gives us the power to change that he has the power, he's willing to give us the Holy Spirit to transform our lives, to take us from being like Esau and selfish and greedy and like Cain and angry and bitter and killing our brothers, and to change us and make us loving, giving us the ability to love him and to love others. Because in our natural carnal nature, we are all selfish. We are all greedy. We will all choose self over others. We will all choose ourselves even over God. That's how we're born. If you don't believe it, think back when you were two days old. You didn't care about anybody else. Feed me, feed me, change me, hold me, take care of me. It was all about you. No matter what time of day or time of night or what else was going on, you didn't care. You take a human and separate him from all other humans and just kind of isolate him and just throw him some food every so often without any training, without any upbringing, the thing will become an animal. And you can put him at a table with some other people and put some food there and plates there and he will just grab the whole thing. He won't wait his turn. He won't share with others. Take it and run. That's how we are naturally that's why we need god to change us and transform us and he gives us the power to change and the ability not to be so self-focused but to love god and love others and he's moved upon our hearts and minds giving us this choice this freedom to choose whether we want a better life 
We see what's happening in the world, more and more selfishness and control and manipulation, nations over their people, wanting to control every aspect of their lives. It's the carnal nature taking over. They're wanting to take away people's free choices. That was the amazing thing about America. Gave people the ability to choose, choose who's gonna run the government, to vote. Most unheard of in all of history of all of humanity. Based on this principle, this biblical principle of choice, of freedoms, freedom to choose your job, choose your spouse, choose where you live. There's lots of countries today that don't even, won't even give you those three choices. Because the carnal mind wants to control and manipulate everybody else and everything else. But that's not God. God gives us freedom to choose, even if that means missing out on heaven. And that's the part that he hates. He hates that we would choose wrong. Another Bible text in 1 John, my little children, these things I write to you that you may not sin. But if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Yeshua HaMashiach, the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Let's look at that again and take it apart. My little children. Right? He loves us. That's endearment. Mine little children. He loves us. These things I write to you. Who's the you? Who did he write this to? To me, right? And who else? All of us. Anyone who wants to read it. Hey, it's being translated into language after language after language to everybody who can read it or hear it. I write to you that you may not sin. Gives us the power not to sin. He writes this so we can follow his way and not sin. And now if he's giving us the power to not sin, what do we also have available to us? The Savior who gives us the power not to sin. But in contrast, if he's given us the power through the Savior, through the Holy Spirit, to not sin, what else has he given us? The power to sin. To choose. And that's what he gave to Adam and Eve. That's what he gave to Lucifer. I go along with that whole kind of concept of God chose who's going to be saved and who's going to go to heaven and who's not before they're even born, arbitrarily, is the idea that after we come to the Lord, we no longer have free choice. That you're once saved and you're always saved forever after that. What state was Lucifer in when he was in heaven? And the one-third of the angels that rejected it. They were saved. Hey, they were in heaven. How much better can you get than that? Loser one of his covering cherubs. And if he can give up that, what makes us think we couldn't give it up after we've received it? Adam and Eve were already in the Garden of Eden. And if they could choose to reject that, what makes us think that he would take away our ability to choose to reject him after we have chosen to him? 
And again, if he took that away, if we did not have the ability to reject him after we have chosen him, then he took away free choice, which again is the greatest gift of love that he has given to humanity. So we will always have that choice to choose him or reject him. But the Bible promises us, once we get to heaven, the new heavens and the new earth, that sin will not raise its head again. Not because we can't choose to reject him. Again, that's where Lucifer rejected him. But because we won't. The entire universe, all created beings, have seen what happens in this experiment here on earth if someone rejects God. They think they got a better plan. It doesn't end well. And so for all eternity, the video replay will be able to go back and we'll be able to run over there and go, no, 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 don't even think it. It's horrible. But while we're here and here and now, we always have free choice. And again, even for them, we'll have free choice. We just won't ever choose to reject it. But here and now, there are people who have received it, had it, like Adam and Eve and like Lucifer and one-third of the angels, who've rejected that salvation, who've rejected that saved position. Now, God won't turn his back on us. There's lots of texts that say God's love is everlasting. God, no one will be able to remove us out of God's hands. Right, and no one else will be able to remove us out of God's hands. And God won't turn his back on us. But we still have the free choice to reject him. We still have the power and the privilege and the gift to reject that love because we're not robots. We are free beings, thus we are able to love him. And we will always have that choice. So he's given us the ability not to sin through his power, through his Holy Spirit. But if any does sin, and say, well, it's okay, you're saved anyway. Is that what it says? No, it says, but if any sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Yeshua the Messiah, the righteous, who's then crucified afresh if we sin, and he himself is the propitiation, he is the substitute, he is the sacrifice for our sins, and not ours only, but also for the whole world. His sacrifice already paid was the sacrifice, the propitiation, the atonement, the payment for the entire world. The whole world. Does that include Esau? Yeah. Does that include Cain? Yeah. The whole world he paid the price. So he offered salvation freely to everyone. And is it offered freely to everyone if there's some that no way in the world could they possibly choose it? No. They're destined to be lost and they don't have the ability to choose this, then it's not freely for all. It's not given for all. Many texts like these and like the ones that we've looked at, freely to all, for all the world. Thus all the world have an opportunity to receive it. And the sooner we take it to them and the sooner they have that opportunity to see it lived out in our lives and hear it and read it for themselves, the better chance they have of receiving it and accepting it and benefiting from the great love that God has for us. That forgiveness of sins, freedom from guilt, 
power and victory over sin, transformed hearts and minds, the ability to love God, the ability to receive God's love, the ability to love other people, the ability to be hurt and pained when other people are rejecting God. Sort of means that he hates Esau. He's pained. It hurts him. He hates what it does to his heart. He hates what Esau is doing to himself. And he hates it, not willing that any should perish. He doesn't want any of us to make the wrong choice. Choose you this day whom you will serve, as Joshua said. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. That's free choice. And so God loves Jacob. And all can become part of Jacob. All can become part of Israel. All can become part of overcomers with God. Prince and princesses with God. Partakers. Everyone who's the Messiah is Abraham's seed. And part of the commonwealth of Israel. His message is there for all of us. And so in a moment, let me pray. If you've been wondering and thinking... I don't know if God loves me or not. Life's not so hot. I'm going through this problem. I don't know if he's hearing my prayers. How have you shown me that you love me? Yeah, I hear it. I see it. I see it in this little card. I see it on this bumper sticker. But does God really love me? If you want to surrender those doubts, and you now see maybe a little bit more, his great love for you and giving his son for you, of him long-suffering, waiting till this day before he comes back so that you can hear his message of love. That he's still giving you life and choice to ability, the ability to love him. That is love. In manifest ways he's poured out his great love to us, to you. And so in a moment, if you want to choose to accept his love, and to choose to love him back. And when we, do, when we pray, you can do that. Secondly, if you've been in any area of your life, maybe just one area, like that young man who came to Yeshua and said, I've been obeying in all these areas, but this one area Yeshua said, you're lacking. And he turned and rejected it. And Yeshua was grieved for him because he rejected it. There's even one area in your life where you're rejecting God, where you're choosing to rebelliously disobey Him, knowingly, willingly, resisting His will. You can surrender it, accept the Messiah's sacrifice, accept His forgiveness, accept that propitiation that's already been paid for you, and be cleansed of that, and have victory over it, and receive His Holy Spirit to empower you and change you. Third, if you know someone who through their lifestyle, through their choices, through their actions, through their words, are rejecting God, you want to reach out and pray, ask God to continue to reach them, continue to have mercy upon them, and to use you. That hurts your heart. Someone you know, someone you care about, and it hurts you. You hate to see what they're doing to themselves and let's surrender them and give them over to God in prayer. Fourth, 
Maybe you see humanity and you don't care. It doesn't bother you. You don't hate that these people are in rebellion and making these wrong choices and turning away from God. And you're totally indifferent to it. Then ask God to give you his heart that's burdened for the lost, that hates to see people rejecting God. And God will do that. He'll take out our selfish heart and he'll give us his heart that we can reach people for him. So God has given us his great love. Let us receive that great love. Maybe you just want to thank him for the great love that he has poured out for you. Or you appreciate it more now knowing that he has given you this great gift. That he trusts you to make a choice for him. And you want to choose him and praise him and thank him for loving you with his great manifest love that he's loved you before he created you, before he created the fountains of this world. He gave his son, planned to have his son die for us. That he has heaven in store for us. Streets of gold, new Jerusalem, new heavens, new earth, all for you for all eternity. And you want to appreciate that love and thank him for that love. And love him that much more. In a moment when we pray, you can thank him and praise him. And let him know that you love him. Let us pray together. Our Lord and our God, King of the universe, we do praise you and thank you for your love towards us, that you first loved us, that you've come after us, that you've given yourself for us, that you don't want any of us, any of us here or anyone else in the world, no one, no matter where they are, you don't want them to be lost. Thank you for pouring out your spirit and your angels and your testimony and your word. Lord, use us in reaching them and sharing your love with others and telling others of your love. Lord, manifest yourself in the earth. Let your glory shine. Thank you for your long-suffering, not willing that any should perish. Lord, thank you for your mercy upon us and giving us more time. Thank you for moving upon our hearts and minds and convicting us of areas where we've been in rebellion against you, where we've rejected your love. And live in us and through us. We choose to choose you. We choose to choose your love. Give us the power to love you. Give us your heart. Give us the ability to love others. Live inside us and work out of us. And take our carnal, selfish nature, buried in the tomb, in Yeshua's holy name. Amen.